you know, when we arrived, we were the worst performing of the top of the big seven supermarkets. We've been losing market share in women's wear for core of our business for 20 odd years. You know, the, the clothing home business is pretty broken at an enormous range. There's a lot of product which you should never, never be restocking. We had a broken supply chain, we had an aging and legacy store base, and we were trading online with only 70% of sales online, with our nearest competitor next with 50%. So that, that looks like a manifesto for failure to me. Archie Norman is arguably the most influential business leader in Britain over the last 40 years. Today, he is chairman of Marks & Spencer, a company founded as a penny bazaar in Leeds in 1884 and a brand which continues to have a special status in Britain. So what a perfect way to start business studies, a podcast which takes a second look at business stories from the past and asks, whether these stories happened the way we think they did and what we can learn from them today. I'm Graham Ruddick. Since it was founded 138 years ago, M&S has endured a remarkable rise, fall, and now, at least Archie Norman hopes, a rise again. In 1998, M&S became the first British retailer to post annual pre-tax profits of more than one billion pounds. But that was as good as it got. In the years that followed, M&S's food and fashion businesses have been squeezed by the rise of new rivals, but also strategic missteps, fashion flops, and an extraordinary turnover of bosses. In Norman, however, M&S now has a chairman who has enjoyed extraordinary success in the retail industry himself, in the 1990s, he turned around the supermarket chain Asda as chief executive and then chairman. He turned a company that had been on the verge of bankruptcy into one that was sold to Walmart, the world's biggest retailer, for £6.7 billion. But you have to wonder, do the qualities that made M&S and Norman such a success in the first place even matter anymore? In a shopping world full of apps, rapid delivery and fast fashion. Well, of course, I'm an old blast, so I'm, I'm bound to say to you that a lot of the skills that made us successful then still apply today. But I, I think it, it's different, but it's the same. You know, retail is still fast. It's a very people business. Leadership matters. Being hands-on, ethical face, you know, even this digital era with all the analysis you can get. There's no substitute for being out in a shop, talking to the customers and talking to the colleagues. So it requires that temperament. You know, retail is as much a temperament and aptitude as it is knowledge. You can have a PhD in it, it won't make you a good shopkeeper. But, you know, we have to face the fact that it, it is much more sophisticated. I mean, when, when I was first went to Asda, most people went into supermarket retailing from non-degree backgrounds. I mean, nothing wrong with that at all, but it, but it, 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 it was just a measure of those very big companies were not seeking to recruit super smart people, and that's all changed um, tremendously. You know, we launched the first graduate recruitment program at ASDA in mid-90s, and I remember the HR person coming to me with some trepidation saying, look, we'll, 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 I was thinking we might recruit 20 graduates. 
And I said to him, it's called Jan Shaw, a great guy. I said, Jan, 20 is no good to me. We need 120. We're not even starting. So it all changed, and that's now normal. I mean, the, the graduates of today are applying to Sainsbury's Tesco, even Aldi. So it's become more sophisticated, and data and digital is just a burgeoning part of our lives. Um, and that means that we have, you know, we employ at m and you know, a couple of hundred data scientists um, who uh, do things I can't pretend I fully understand all the time, but but it is going to be very pivotal to what we do in the future. So now you have to be able to ride both bicycles at once. You know, the data digital world, which is very different, and the hands-on retail shifting product around dealing with customers' world. You've spoken, uh, I think this is ASDA, where you, you replaced 490 of the top 500 within the first... Five years. Five years, yeah. yeah. Are you then saying at m you're looking for entirely different skills in people today that you were back then when you were hiring all those people? No, well, that's to do with the turnaround. So when you deal with an organisation which is broadly speaking, been failing for years, I mean, m it's unkind to say it was a failure because it was still a profitable business, but you take it out the peaks and drops, 25 years of drift, despite Rinson, a very good leadership. That is driven by the organisation culture. So behind every financial failure, there's organisation failure. And there's something about it which meant that good people could come and go, but the place didn't really turn around. I always think, you, you know, people changing means changing people. You, know, you, you can wait a decade and try and retrain them all, or you, you can say, let's get some fresh talent in. When you get fresh talent in, it energizes the good people you have. It enables them to change the way they look at things. Um, it enables them to start working differently. So, yes, it has to. It was an extreme case, probably, but we've changed the majority of the team at M&S. Now, when it's a change, some promoting, you know, young talent or people spectacularly. I will love double jumps. You know, promoting people and throwing them a deep end. So there's some of that, but we have brought in a lot of new people and because we're trying to fundamentally change the way the company works. What's your take on M&S before you arrived, 2017? I heard you talk about it drifting and that one of your first tasks was to, as you had at, at, at Asda, to get people there to face up to what you've described, I think, as the unvarnished truth. So yeah. what what was that unvarnished truth? I think that... The genesis of any turnaround is the presentation of the unvarnished truth. In other words, the ability of the leadership to state things as they really are, however grim they might be. Because most companies that are drifting or failing develop their own psychology of drift. They rationalize. Now they'll say things like, the market's been very unfair to us. You know, we don't get the credit for what we've done. Uh, they'll explain away their failures as we're just about to do this, we've just invested in that, we're about to go online. You'll get that rationalisation and it's human psychology. You know, the, the middle management is explaining to the leadership why it's okay and so that breeds not complacency but a, a sort of settling for what is. Yet on the front line, you know, your store managers or your people trading online, they know that it's not working because they just experience it every day. So. When the leadership come in and they say, look, we're facing an existential crisis, if we don't change, 
we won't be around in 10 years time. Our costs are too high. We're too hierarchical. We're not strong enough online. Our stores, have got legacy stores that should have been changed years ago. We need to modernise this stage. When you present those truths, as Steve Rowe did in 2018, everybody thinks, oh, this is going to be terrible. You'll get terrible press. You know, you, the shareholders will sell the shares and people leave the company. Actually, the opposite happens. People, the shareholders think, thank God, somebody's arrived and they see it as we see it. We've known that for years and now they see it. So instead of the sort of classic management propaganda, we, we've got the unvarnished truth. And then the store managers think, that's terrific. At last, somebody knows what I'm going through day to day. And then people feel released to put forward their own criticisms and their own energy for change. And that, that's why so often people arrive and they think they're going to turn something around by sort of spreading the good news. They act like the leadership has PR and it doesn't work. And, you know, I think that when you look at M&S was a great, great company in the 1980s and 90s and really famous throughout the world and going to the US. Do you remember Brooks Brothers and King Supermarkets and you know, billion pound profit? And, and genuinely, I mean, it was, was so much to admire about it. You know, this extraordinary product based, all own label, innovative business. And then something happened. So it sort of stalled. Not overnight, but slowly. And really, part of this was it had always been led by, you know, it was founded by Michael Marks, 1884, Simon Marks, David Rayner, Marcus Seif. It had been run by these um, predominantly Jewish diaspora entrepreneurs. And they weren't all the same family, but, but they were like family. And they were they treated as if they owned it. And they had that drive and passion. And I think it was quite autocratic. I, I don't think it was, you know, a modern sort of democratic involving sort of place, but it was driven. And then after Rick Greenbury, want a better word, professional management moved in. I mean, and I mean it nicely. It's super smart people who worked differently. They had committees and project teams and and the company didn't really know how to respond to this so that old hierarchy remained you know the the deference and the unwillingness to speak the truth but the the autocratic style of entrepreneurial leadership had gone hence we had good people come and go i mean you know look at the boardroom of m&s it's it's the pantheon of the good and greater british business (laughs) really amazing people i know who i have huge respect for but if you ask them about their time in MS, they also were very frustrating. You know, we, we, we could never quite tell what was going on. It was so difficult to make anything happen. And that tells you that you have what was driving the problem, the decline, was, was deep-seated. It was right in the way people work, in the way they look at the company, this sense of vanity that great companies have, you know, that we're, we're the great M&S, you know. It can't be happening to us. So that's why you have to puncture that and reground the business so that then you can start from a more a humble view of the world and rebuild it from the ground up. You said at one point there that it might not survive in 10 years. When you joined, was that honestly a scenario that was on the table if, if things didn't? Well, in all the scenario you talk about, because it, 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 to some extent you, there are limits to what you're prepared to say. You don't want to end up 
undermining your supplier commitment and people who are coming in. But look at Debenhams. Look at the business failures. I mean, the, the, the most successful companies today didn't exist 20, 30 years ago. And M&S has existed for 140 years. So we want to exist for another 140 years. So I do think, you know, when we arrived with the worst performing of the top of the big seven supermarkets, we've been losing market share and women's wear for core of our business for 20 odd years, you know, the, the clothing home business pretty broken, had an enormous range, look quite a little product which you should never, never be, be stocking. We had a broken supply chain, we had an aging and legacy store base, and we were trading online with only 70% of sales online, with our nearest competitor next with 50%. So that, that looks like a manifesto for failure to me. And I do think businesses fail. I don't think it's going to happen. You know, I, I think we've done the right things. But um, when you're leading a company or chairman or chief executive, a good chief executive is acutely conscious of the risk of failure. You, know, you, you should feel that the whole time. And that's not something to be frightened about admitting. It's, 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 it's what really people do feel. And, and certainly in your business like M&S, you've got to believe you've got a burning platform. You know, we've got two or three years to change and we've got to seize the moment. You mentioned Debenhams there. There's also the House of Fraser example and others as well. Given the struggles that they've had and that the traditional supermarkets have had as well, is there not something to be said for how robust and resilient M&S has been since the turn of the century? I think when you get such a great brand with such a great idea of what it does, so unique, there's a long, long, slow taper. So that's right. You can you can make a lot of mistakes, and it's tolerant of that. But we were trading off our brand. We we're trading off our goodwill. And people would say to me, and I joined. Oh, I love M and S. You know, I, I I used to go shopping there with my mum. It's amazing. I remember shopping as a child. Well, that's very nice. But you know, they don't say I take my daughter shopping there, and that's where where we need to be. So you get this long slow taper and. People would say, oh, well, I love, I love the, I don't shop for the clothing, I love the food. And then so I don't shop there very much for the food. So you can trade off that for just so long, but ultimately it, it, it fades. And I, I think by 2017, I think we were on clothing at home, particularly, we were on the lip of, of a surreal inflection point, a real rejection. Since Norman joined MS, plenty has happened. M&S has started selling food online after a £750 million deal to partner with Ocado. It has closed dozens of shops. It has bought other brands, such as Jaeger, although it is still uniquely focused on its own food and clothing products. M&S has, of course, also had to get through the COVID-19 crisis when its shops were closed and tens of thousands of staff furloughed. During this period, Norman has often seemed a particularly hands-on chairman, which has raised question marks about his relationship with former boss Steve Rowe. So how does Norman see his role as chairman? I don't think I'm unconventional, but some people think I am. I mean, my attitude is all chairmanship is situational. So your job isn't six hours a week or seven days a week. It's somewhere between the two, depending on what the company needs. Your job is to be available to the company and if you're in a turnaround you're going to be who wants hands-off chairman in a turnaround you want to be engaged the chief executive needs a lot of support 
Um, uh, if you're in, you know, if you ever get into plain calm blue water, not not an experience I've had recently, but if you get into that, then I dare say you put your feet up on the boardroom table and light the cigar, well, metaphorically, allowed to do that. So it's, it's somewhere between the two. And I, I would say when I arrived, I was obviously because I wanted to, with Steve Rowe, create this or 5,000 volt shock and start fundamentally rebuilding the company. I, I was pretty hands on. That doesn't mean I went around making executive decisions. But I was, my job was to enable the executive to make those decisions, to give them the courage, and actually not to make it optional. I wasn't telling necessarily you know, what to do, but you can't just do nothing. And um, uh, to galvanize the business. Um, now things have changed because, um, you know, I've got strong leadership. We've got Stuart and Katie have taken over and I do what I can to support them and we have a lot of discussion around strategy and issues in the future and so on and I do think the chairman and the board should always be guardian of the strategy and values of the company. It doesn't mean you write it but you're the dialogue partner and that's probably the mode we're in. And the same is true of the board. I mean, okay, I'm chairman and my job is to lead the board and I do think I've got a, you've got to put in a shift but I don't want a board direct of sort of so-called independent directors. Now, I know what people mean by independent. They mean objective. Actually, I want a board of dependent directors who are in the sense that they are objective, but they're committed to our success. They want to work with the executive to make it succeed. And equally, they want to prevent a catastrophe or failure. So when I started, I think it's fair to say members of the M&S board were disillusioned and you know they said to me we're frustrated here we can't really tell what's going on we don't get the information you know we we were sold one thing and we got another and I looked at the board reviews and we got high marks for corporate governance but not that greater review for business engagement so and I said to everybody look you're going to be on this board I can't promise anything on a bumpy ride there's got to be moments when this won't be reputationally enhancing. I said, well, the one thing we will do is we'll all be close and we're all on a mission to save the company and to help Steve and the team turn it around. And that, if it were, it'd be going to be great. Now, some people didn't want to come on that journey, but the board are, I think they do feel they know what's happening. They feel they're very open, transparent discussions. And that's the pleasure, that's what you get out of being a non-exec. It's very interesting, Dad, that you say that was high corporate governance scores, but perhaps not on other scores. Do you think that's an issue in British corporate life in general at the moment, that corporate governance has been prioritised over quality of decision-making processes? Yes, I, I do think that. I, I don't think it's always an issue, don't get me wrong. I, I, don't, I don't disapprove of corporate governance. I mean, in my lifetime, it's gone from being the boardroom as a sort of slightly gangsterish you know, clubbable world to, to, to immensely better. But I, the, the prerequisite for good governance is close engagement. So unless the board know what's happening, they can feel it. Unless you've got total transparency between the executive and the board so that the executive feel comfortable talking about what's going wrong in the boardroom. Unless the board has ways of understanding whether what they're being told is the reality, then you don't have to worry about governance because you won't have, it doesn't matter. Now, the board of Royal Bank of Scotland before the crash was a very distinguished board. 
of people who did know what they were doing, but they didn't understand that what was happening in the business. Or I think that's what the report says. I'm no expert. But it, 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 if you look at big corporate failures, it's not typically because you didn't have a highly qualified board ticking the right boxes. It's because the board didn't understand what was really happening. So if you take a Carillion, I again, I'm no expert. From what I've read, the board didn't really understand what the contracts said and what the economic implications were. I, I'm sure if they had done, they would have taken the right action. They were, you know, I, 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 I don't know them as individual, but I'm sure they would. So, so the prerequisite for governance is engagement. And I just think you've got to get that balance right. One recent challenge was the departure of Steve Rowe as chief executive. He had been at M&S for his entire career. Norman announced that Rowe would be replaced by a three-strong team of Stuart Machen, Katie Biggerstaff and Owen Tong. But just four months later, Tong quit. Look, uh, you learn in life, you can never manage, you know, I can't hyper-manage people's careers and... Um, we, we like Owen a lot and he's done a lot of good for us. I mean, you know, three years ago, we worried about the year end. It was always a dodgy ride and the accountants orders used to bite their fingernails. Uh, Owen's brought real credibility to our finance function and he's also been a great colleague, so we, we'll miss him. He decided that let's move the right thing in his career. It's not what we expected, but um, there we go and um, wish him well and we, we'll... Um, I don't want to say finance directors come and go, but we'll, we'll, we'll find another one. What did you mean there about the finances? Is that traditional retail, end of year, supplier bills and revenue all coming together? Yes, and, and just the, the state of our, bluntly, state of our accounting. And, um, you know, it was when I first joined, we, Helen Weir, who was then the finance director, came to me and said, well, I got a bit of a problem with the fixed asset register. And it turned out that we had £40 million of, property in the fixed asset register that shouldn't have been there because it wasn't there. No, that's the sort of thing. It wasn't cash, by the way, but it was the sort of thing that happened at MS. And again, I, you know, I think now we have a tight grip on, insofar as you can, you know, what's our performance like today? What's it like to be in a month's time, three months' time? You know, our cash positions transform. And remember, we had nearly two billion of net debt. Um, and people used to worry about our balance sheet because we've got all these lease liabilities and we've got um, a pension fund that needs funding uh, on top. Now we've ended last year with 400 million net debt. You know, if we have a reasonable year and we don't spend it all, I think expecting to spend about 400 to 450 million this year. But we'll generate over a billion, we could generate over a billion EBITDA. You could imagine a time when M&S has no net debt. Did the state of those accounts surprise you when you first joined? I'm used to, you know, when you join companies that have not been doing very well, I don't want to say failing, but companies not doing very well, you rarely get good surprises. Now, the first day I, I went to Asda, I met with the finance team, and as you do, and said, well, guys, you know, do we have a forecast for the year? And said, no, we, we don't really have a forecast. And I said, well, do you have a forecast in the next three months? And they said, yes, we do. And doesn't look very good and I said well what happens after that and they said well probably we'll be in breach of all our loan covenants we just had an emergency rights issue so that, that wasn't a good moment and I rang my wife 
was I was dropping leads and said, don't come up yet because I'll be back soon, probably. <laughs> so, it, it, you know, that's, you get that. And, and at M&S, it wasn't like that at M&S. But I think that, again, because it's been this great company with a, and great companies that are in decline to develop a slight vanity syndrome, there was an unwillingness to recognise even that the balance sheet was quite stretched. You know, so the IR team and the PR team were, were used to trying to defend the situation. And it's not actually necessary to do that, but I know why people do that. So instead of saying, well, actually, we're paying out too high a dividend for the balance sheet we've got, and it's the interest of shareholders that we reduce the cash outflow, restore the balance sheet in order to grow again. You know, you, you need a sort of permission to say that, which wasn't there. The pandemic bought its good fortune in a sense. I mean, it was bought lots of ill luck, but it bought good fortune because it gave us a pretext to, to, to stop paying out the dividend. Um, and that's helped us restore the balance sheet. And our commitment is, I mean, our commitment is to be a growth company. It's not, not to be a, a sort of, how much cash can we squeeze out of this company? M&S is just the latest part of an illustrious career for Norman. Before working in retail, he was the youngest ever partner at consultancy firm McKinsey. After Asda, he went on to become the chairman of ITV and was also the UK chairman of financial advisory firm Lazard. He also had a spell working in private equity. Oh, and he was also an MP, which we'll come on to in a second. Just one example of his influence is the remarkable collection of names who have worked under him and subsequently gone on to bigger things. They include Justin King, who went on to run Sainsbury's, Alan Layton, who went on to run Royal Mail, and Richard Baker, who went on to lead Boots and Whitbread. There are many others. I like to see people succeed. You know, it, it doesn't matter whether they, even the guys that leave or women that leave, I, half of me sort of feels irritated they've gone elsewhere, and the other half is sort of thrilled you know, that they've succeeded. So... Um, and I keep in touch with people all the time. You know, people who worked with me 20, 30 years ago, I keep in touch with them. But I'm interested in them. I'm fundamentally very interested in, in, in people. So I, th I think what's happened really is that not any great genius on my part. I've, I've gone into situations which are, are challenging. And typically we've had to recruit new people and bring them in and had to create a sort of project, a, a mountain to climb, a challenge. And that's attracted certain type of people and often in these situations you can't recruit the sort of industry leaders now when, when i went to asda we our headhunters actually approached terry leahy to say would he come join asda as marketing director unsurprisingly he declined that opportunity but so you couldn't get the big panjandrum so you had to go two levels like younger down people early stage in their career and say come and join us. It's a bit risky, but we'll give you more responsibility than you'll get in the next five years where you are. Hence, you've got everybody, you know, people from Alan Layton and Justin King and Richard Baker and Paul Mason, Tony Nuncio and Andy Bond and many others came in and they went through the fire it has to. And it's the same with M&S. You, you, what you're able to do in a changing company is, is, is extraordinary, but it's intense. And that forges your management experience and attitudes and then bring that to the next place you go. 
So I think that's really what's happened. You know, I'd love to tell you I had some magic formula for attracting people. I haven't. Um, and, and there've been plenty, incidentally, haven't gone on to successful things, but um, that's the way it is. And, um, you know, we love them all. I wonder whether looking back over the years with your experience now, even looking back to the other days, whether you, you feel there's anything you would have done differently or if there's any regrets and what you know now compared to what you didn't know then? Look, there's always, you know, in all humility, there's loads of stuff you do differently and things that I, I feel embarrassed about now, but I'm not, you know, they've been airbrushed out of history. <laughs> That's the way it is. And, and in, in management, especially in those, these situations, things come up through the windscreen and you, you make the best decision you can at the time. And sometimes you handle things wrong too. And, you know, I worry about times when we didn't handle people right and um, they went away feeling unhappy. I don't worry about changing people. I never think that hardly anyway, I think we ever moved too soon. I don't worry about divesting ourselves of businesses we shouldn't be in or closing facilities. I, I don't think, you know, it may sound cold hearted, but everywhere I've been, we were bending too slow. I do worry that we, that I haven't been radical enough. When you look back through the great sweep of history, at the time, it feels like you're being radical. When you look back, it doesn't always feel that that way. And I worry, you know, I mean, if you want specific things, I often wonder whether we were right to sell Asda to Walmart. Um, of course, it's not part of Walmart now. Um, you think it was too cheap or not the right time, not the right buyer? It wasn't too cheap at the time. It was a bloody good price. But uh, the um, it was a very good business. I mean, it just was a very strongly performed business, the unique culture, unique brand. And although Walmart were very good owners initially, over time, I'm not sure that was so true. And of course, let's remember that they ended up selling it for, if anything, less than we we sold it for 20 odd years previously. So I don't know. I don't know. Now, one of the things you find, we, I say we, um, my Alan Layton and Tony Campbell and Tony and I see the team, when you've been through a, a searing crisis where you just don't know whether you're going to survive, you live with that. Uh, as a leader, you live with that. And you, you always feel you could tip back into the abyss unless you do something. I think that fear of not being able to sustain our success, which was that by then nine years long, that fear coloured our view. So when Walmart turned up with eventually 220 pence, and when I went to Asda, 20, share price 23 pence, the turn up at 220 pence, you think, you know, this is amazing. And it's all banks, everything you've achieved. So, so we opted to sell the business. And I, I think we'll always ponder as to whether that was the right thing to do. My, my colleagues would, would say the same. I've heard you say that after you sold Asda, you didn't want to go back into the stores because you felt you'd spent so long in them, talking to people and, and looking around. Do you still feel that way? Today. No, I don't really go there now, actually. Um, I don't, the stores have changed a lot and a bit of me, you know, I do feel a, a little worried about where the business is um, because it's a bit in my heart. But but no, for years, remember I left, Alan stayed on and then after him, every chief executive since until a couple of years ago have been people recruited. So I was very conscious they didn't want sort of daddy turning up and poking around the stores and most of the store managers I would know and people would recognize me and I, I felt it was for them to, to take it on and uh, I need to move on you know you have to move on in life and um, 
there's no good hankering in a sort of nostalgic way over the past and saying I wouldn't have done it this way. Just to pick up on something you said, Danny, are you concerned about the current state of our direction of the business under the new owners? I, it's not my business to be concerned, you know. I, I, and I know the Issa brothers, and they've got an amazing story. And I think, you know, full marks them. They've done a, an amazing deal in buying the company when other people, you know, there wasn't a lot of conventional opposition uh, competition. So, and I think they'll make a great return out of it. But uh, it's a very hard time for full line supermarkets. You know, your costs are going up. Your volumes are flat. Well, your volumes are in decline, your sales are flat. Um, it's a very hard time. And that large store format, to my eye, needs a refresh. It, you know, People are losing the idea, why should I drive past the Aldi or Little or the small store to get to the large store? And the large store doesn't offer me anything different. Except it takes longer to shop. And that, that's what it feels to me like. And um, that requires capital unfortunately and it's hard to see how you get the return but it, it, it it's um now take morrison's private private hands asden private hands it's difficult to see where the capital is going to come from and that that that's the challenge while still chairman of asda in 1997 norman became a conservative mp he stood down in 2005 frustrated after eight years in opposition to tony blair's labor Going from the FTSE boardroom to the House of Commons has not been done again since. Look, I learnt a lot. I mean, however capable you think you are, when you step out of the business leadership world into the front line of politics, you're stepping onto a different planet. It is very different, and so you learn a bit of humility for a start. But as I said, they are different planets, so that the worlds aren't the same. And you, it's not... People love to say you can take lessons from politics into business or vice versa. Yes, a, a little bit, but it is a different. It is a different world. I, I, I um, no, I enjoyed my time in public life. I would have enjoyed it more if we'd actually gotten around to winning anything. So the Conservative Party was, uh, we went our long march into the wilderness, and it wasn't until David Cameron came along that I hadn't foreseen um, that things started to change. And so I felt towards the end that you've got to take time in life that God gives you. And my role in life is to make things happen, is to change things. And I wasn't going to change them as an opposition politician. So, so I went back to the, the, the business world. And I think, look, did I, yeah, of course, in politics, you, you learn to communicate in a different way. Uh, <laughs> you do a lot of old fashioned speaking at events. I, I really try and avoid doing speeches now, partly for that reason, but you learn to do that, to, to stand on your own feet. You're an entrepreneur. In politics, you you don't work in t- teams. I, I don't want to be absolutist, but it, it's not every man for himself, but you have your own franchise and team working and management are not really rated. So you learn all that and it gives you some confidence afterwards. And you were the first, I still think, only FTSE chairman to, to go into the House of Commons. Well, yes, this is my minuscule footnote in history. <laughs> I'll never get another one. You know, but, but, uh, uh, at the time, you know, I was chairman of ASDA and we were FTSE 35 or 40 or something. And I had time on my hands, so I threw my hat in the ring. And it, it, the interesting thing is that um, people rather liked it. Now, today, there would probably be an outcry, but people rather liked it in Tunbridge Wells, where my constituency and the party, they thought having a, 
a serving chairman of a large company in Parliament was a thoroughly good thing, and they felt it was a good thing for Parliament. After his spells in politics, private equity and broadcasting with ITV, Norman's appointment by m in 2017 marked a return to the retail industry for him. It was a job he'd been approached about twice before, but rejected. This time, though, he went for it. Tempted by what Norm describes as a lifetime challenge and the opportunity to work with Steve Rowe. Are you glad you said yes? Of course, although it's been a hard slog. I mean, and, you know, I, I'd like to see the share price respond. And, you know, you always want to see some recognition for what we've achieved. And I don't think we have that. I think we've moved mountains and now there are more mountains to move. And that's the way it is. But there we are. I only work for companies that have a heartbeat. You know that that have a there's a point to them uh, that that if they didn't exist somebody would say be disappointed and that's true of M and S it's a very special company very special people very British company by the way and it's in the heart of the nation well I like to think it is and and so we can make this work it'll be worthwhile and there are no there are no statues and monuments in business so nobody remembers what you've done but you'd like to be able to look back and say. We made a difference to that company and that company made a difference to the country. What would success look like for your tenure? To leave the company growing, um, capable of sustained growth, by which I mean not, not like a startup, but you know, high single-digit growth um, for years to come. To have a business where each side of the business performing, high-performing management team, great place to work, magnet for talent, people coming towards you, not running away. Yeah, I'd like to see the share price respond. But the, you have to be a philosophical. That, that's a byproduct of everything else we do. And I'd like people to say, yes, M&S is back. You've been listening to Business Studies with me, Graham Ruddick. Our producer is Anushka Tate. For extra content from this interview, including Archie Norman's thoughts on the economy today and what the government should do, please sign up to our newsletter, Off to Lunch, at offtolunch.substack.com.